Today's scripture is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Jake. I'm one of the the pastors here. Um, I'm really excited. We're starting a new book um, in 1 Samuel. Um, And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, go ahead. You can raise your hand. We've got ushers that will bring you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, this is yours. It's your gift. It's our gift to you. You can keep it. You can read it. You can mark it up. Uh, we also have uh, Bibles in Spanish. Um, if, uh, if that's your heart language, if that's your original language, you, we have those for you as well. Just to indicate that to the ushers. Redemption Church, uh, I'm excited to be here this morning. Like I said, we're starting a new series. We just finished up with uh, Colossians, uh, which was very good for our church. Now we're going to the Old Testament, uh, and we're looking at first and then eventually second Samuel. I do also want to say before I begin, uh, we do have the kids in here, um, and so we have our elementary students here um, in our service today, so I just want to give a quick shout out, welcome uh, to the kids. Um, Yeah, right? also want to let you know, kids, that you are welcome in this place as well. Um, You are a part of our church family. We love you, and we care for you, and parents... You're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. Uh, Don't worry if your kids make noise. Um, It's okay. I've got three kids myself, so eventually you just learn to tune it out, and that's okay. Um, But don't worry. You're doing great. Well, before we dive in, let uh, let us pray and dive into the scriptures this morning. God, you are good. We thank you that um, you have made yourself known to us, that you care for us so deeply, so much so that, that, that you sent your son Jesus to come to us and to die for us. Help us as we dive into a culture so long ago and a story so long ago, help us to see you. Jesus, you tell us in your word that uh, all of scripture points to you. And so, Lord, help us to see you more clearly this morning. May we uh, love you more deeply, and may we worship you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said, we're going to be picking it up in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and uh, over the next few months, uh, we're going to be diving into uh, a, a culture that is very different than ours, that existed thousands of years ago. 
And the book of 1st and then 2nd Samuel is it's an historical account of the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. We'll see the rise and the reign of King David. And I would say apart from Jesus and maybe Moses, King David's the most popular person in the Bible and we'll see his life. However, it is more than just a historical description of a country. We will see God working and moving in, his, uh, in and among his people, and we'll see what it looks like to love God with all of our heart, however imperfectly we may do so. So before we dive into our immediate text of Israel, as, as, as Liz uh, read, uh, Israel requesting a king. Before we dive into that, I wanted to kind of set the historical context. Um, I'm, I was a history major in college. I, ta- I taught um, uh, history for a number of years. This stuff, in, I, I, I get a lot of joy out of this. So let's dive in. Um, and basically, I want to set the historical context. Um, and so we got to go back. Uh, in the book of Exodus, God drives his people away from Egypt. He saves his people uh, through Moses. And then there's 40 years in the desert, which we read about in in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. After the 40 years in the desert, the Hebrews, under the leadership of Joshua, they come in and they remove the Canaanites from the land. They drive them out. And 1 Samuel, the book where we're starting this morning, is about 400 years after Joshua. So about 400 years have passed. Historically, we're looking at about the year 1050. Um, There's give or take a little bit, but the year 1050 for 1 Samuel 8. And that's 1050 BC, by the way, and just point that out. Uh, The ancient world at this point is is really just basically a network of city-states. Each city-state having different cultural and religious systems. Probably the most well-connected city-state system is the Philistines with five city-states. They're the neighbors to Israel. Ancient Egypt is a shell of its former self. This is not the height of Egypt. Uh, Assyria was beginning to uh, grow in power to the north. Ancient Greece is a backwater culture at this point. It's still 600 years until democracy in Athens. And so across the Near East, though, it is a, it is a culture, it is a world of almost constant warfare. One historian says that disorders and disturbances, revolt and turmoil was commonplace. And the warlike character of the time period cannot be denied. And that's where we're going into this morning. Well, during those 400 years between Moses and Joshua and 1 Samuel 8, we have the biblical book of Judges. And the story of God's people during that time is not a good one. The design in the book of Judges is that Israel would be a theocracy. God would rule And the priests would lead the people in holiness, and they would maintain the holiness of the people through the sacrificial system. Tribal leaders would kind of help maintain order, but 
it was really the responsibility of the parents to teach the ways of God to their children and the priests to teach it to the people. It's in the book of Judges uh, that we hear of the famous stories of Samson and Gideon, Deborah, and Jael's tent peg. These are the famous stories of the Bible. Uh, and we repeatedly see God working in and through his people to answer prayer and to protect them. But the book of Judges repeatedly shows the sinfulness and unfaithfulness of the people. And the theme of this book was that there was no God in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it is a book of just time and time again, the people would rebel. God would discipline them, usually through a military means, and then uh, God would send a deliverer or a judge to come in and save them. And then the cycle would continue over and over again, but things just continued to get worse and worse and worse for the people of God. And we watch in Judges the wickedness of Israel increase with every cycle. They would forget God. They would worship other gods, and that would cause them to uh, uh, dive into sin and eventually start to sacrifice their children. They would oppress one another and manipulate others. And in the book of Judges, the sins of the people get progressively worse and progressively evil. And the book of Judges ends with people from the tribe of Benjamin, where the entire town of Gibeah forces themselves on a single woman for an entire night until she died. These are the people of God. That brings us to the book of Samuel. And I would love to say things are different. I would love to say that we've entered a new book. It's new book, new me, let's get going. God's people are gonna be awesome. But what we see in the first seven chapters of Samuel is that we see much of the same. What happens in chapters one through seven is that the, pri the priests are corrupt. Hophni and Phinehas the religious leaders who are supposed to lead the people in holiness, they're sexually abusing women in the tabernacle, and they're abusing their power over the people. During this time, the Philistines come up and they attack the Israelites, and they defeat the Israelites in battle and kill 4,000 of the Israelites. And this understandably sends the Israelites into shock and confusion. And they say, why has the Lord defeated us today at the hands of the Philistines? So they have a great idea. They just got defeated by the Philistines. They have a great idea. Let's get the box. Let's get the box. So they go and they bring up the Ark of the Covenant. And they say, uh, and they say, Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant here that it may come among us and save us from our enemies. The Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt and where he was enthroned. They continue to rebel against God and don't worship him, uh, but they think, yes, as long as we have the Ark here, as long as we have God here, we'll be victorious. God doesn't play that game. God is not a good luck charm, the ark is not a good luck charm. 
The next day, it tells us that the Philistines fought again. The Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to their home, and there was a great slaughter for 30,000 Israelites were killed. The ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed as well. When Eli, the chief priest, heard this, and he heard that his sons were killed, it says that he fell over backward on his chair and broke his neck, and he also died. It continues. The wife of Phinehas, upon hearing uh, uh, that her husband was killed, that very same day she gave birth, And she lived just barely long enough to name her son, and she named her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. Safe to say that this is the low point for the people of God thus far. However, in the darkness, there's still light, and God is still moving. In the backdrop of Israel's unfaithfulness, we see Hannah's faithfulness. Hannah is a barren woman, and she's struggling through infertility. And it says that over the years, she was constantly ridiculed for not being able to have children. And there were years of weeping and praying and pouring her soul out before the Lord. And it says that the Lord remembered Hannah, and she conceived and bore a son and named him Samuel. I do just want to say really quick, if you or if someone you know has been struggling through infertility, read through Hannah's story. Read through Hannah's story at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Read through it, and you can know that God hears you. God loves you, and God cares for you. And that brings us to 1 Samuel 8. And my goal today, in the backdrop of what's going on with Israel, is is simple. Understand what happened, what's happening here thousands of years ago, and see how it affects us and see how we do the same thing today. And it exposes the way that we trust in other things other than God. Starting with 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says that Samuel has now become old. So Samuel, uh, his mother was Hannah. She gave birth. Samuel has now become a judge over Israel, a priest over Israel. And it says that uh, he has become old. And his sons were once again following suit And so this cycle is continuing. They're taking bribes. They're perverting justice. The cycle is continuing. And so the people of Israel, actually in this moment, rightly see the corruption, and they want it to stop. So let's pick it up in verse 4. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased the Lord when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, 
And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. From the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Israel wants a king. Now, I don't think that having a king is necessarily a bad thing for the people of God. And actually, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses and God, uh, they, they, they lay out all the regulations for a king in Israel. I think it was always part of God's design to have a king. And we'll see later with David in this book, we have a king who's uh, one who's after God's heart, and he was the ideal king, certainly not perfect, but the ideal king for his people. It's not that they wanted a king, it's why they wanted a king. Now, Samuel shares that this is not a good idea, and in, and in verses uh, 10 through 18, he, he talks about, uh, he lists all the things that the king would do. He, he'll take your sons for his army. He'll take your sons to work in his fields. He'll take your, your daughters to work in the palace. He'll take the best of, his, of your fields for his own. He'll take a tenth of all you own. He'll tax you. He'll be a weight on you. The king would be a taker, not a giver. That didn't matter. That didn't matter to the Israelites. They wanted him anyway. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to be like everyone else. Look at what he says in verse 20. After all what Samuel has said, say, this king is going to do all these things, they say, no, there shall be a king over us that we may be like the nations that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. Their reasons for wanting a king. First, that they may be like the nations. That their king, number two, may judge them. And their third reasons is that they, that the king would go out and fight their battles for them. And there's something incredibly telling about these three things. What's telling is that Israel already has someone who does these three things. They already have someone who judges them. They already have someone who fights for them. They already have someone who rules over them. Deuteronomy 10:17, for the Lord your God is a is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Deuteronomy 32.4, the God is the rock. His, work, his, his works are perfect and all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. God is a perfect judge over his people. Deuteronomy 1.30, as the people were afraid to go, um, uh, were afraid of the Canaanites, God said to them, 
Do not, be in, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God uh, who goes before you will himself fight for you. Just as he did in Egypt before your eyes. And it's really telling because uh, the song of Moses after uh, the Red Sea, after the Lord parted the Red Sea, the song of Moses says this, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host were cast in the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your enemies. One of the two most common descriptions of God, not only in the first few books of the Bible, but in all of the Old Testament, is that God is a God who judges perfectly and a God who fights for his people. See, in asking for a king, they're not just asking for a political leader. They are radically changing the, the very political system in Israel. This is a revolution. It's a revolution not only against Samuel, but a revolution against God. See, it was God who implemented the current system uh, back with Moses, and Israel had had enough of it. Kevin DeYoung uh, says it this way in his kid's Bible, the biggest story Bible. Samuel warned. He warned them that a king was a bad idea. A king would take their fields, their flocks, their livestock. Israel didn't care. They wanted someone to lead their armies. They wanted a God they could see. They wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted to replace God with a human. Look at the end of verse 18. Samuel says, you want a king, but when you cry out, the Lord will not answer you. Essentially, Samuel is saying, you have a king, go to him. The people turn away from God. And they put their hope in a king. And as long as a king would protect them, they didn't care what happened. As long as a king ruled over them, they wouldn't care. As long as the king fought for them, they wouldn't care. As long as the king appointed conservative judges, they wouldn't care what happened. As long as the king canceled all of student debt, they wouldn't care what happened. It doesn't matter if they didn't have God anymore. They had their king. They wanted a tangible king they could see, not God. They wanted to be like everyone else and like all the other people, all the other city-states that had a king that ruled over them. God hears their requests. And he says, obey their voice and make them a king. And this isn't a good thing, Redemption Church. This is not my kid coming up to me and asking for a cookie and saying, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do it. This is my kid repeatedly not listening to me when they are doing something that they can, that, that they can hurt themselves and me going and saying, all right, watch what happens. This is God saying to the people, this is what you want. Here you go. This is what we call in our family, by the way, of natural consequences of our actions. 
In the next week, in the next chapter, they choose Saul. And spoiler alert, it's not a good thing. Saul's name literally means what was asked for. The Israelites get what they asked for, and it's not good. They wanted a king who would judge them, who would fight for them, so that they would be like the rest of the nations. Redemption Church, I don't think it's a large jump to survey the people of God today and say we have done the same thing. The church, in so many ways, has forsaken God and put our trust in the state, put our trust in the government. And how do I know this? I mean, it's not that hard to see, but how do I know this? Answer this question. Honestly, who do you think can make things right in our world? There's clearly a lot of brokenness. There's clearly a lot of issues. Who can make things right? Do not our minds immediately turn to the government? We so quickly turn to the government to solve our problems, whether it's COVID or climate change or mass shootings or wealth disparities or health insurance. As long as we can get the government to act the right way, everything will be made right. The entire country is constantly looking to the government, regardless of what political aisle you tend to land, as long as we have the right laws, as long as we have the right leaders, we'll have peace. And you can look at the news, especially in the last few years, or really look at anyone on social media, and you can see how much hope we place in our government. It's kind of like this. A few months ago, uh, my daughters had a birthday party uh, with some of their friends from school. And in the course of that, that, that birthday party, uh, all of the kids went under a tree, probably about 25 yards away from the party. And they very quickly formed their own kingdom, and they started chanting, no adults allowed, no adults allowed. And any time an adult approached, they would yell and scream at this adult. And so me, me, me and the other parents, we just kind of stood there and just watched this Lord of the Flies situation develop. <laughs> Until... They were trying to figure out what they wanted to do, what, they, what, what were they going to do with their newly budding kingdom, their newly declared independence, what were they going to do? And then one boy runs over to the birthday table and he grabs the box of donuts and he runs over to the tree. You should have seen how quickly he was made king over those kids. He clearly had the great ideas. He clearly should lead us. He clearly made the best decisions. But as all the parents in the, the room know, a giant box of donuts and a bunch of kids is not a good situation. The first words of our Constitution are, we the people of the United States. In order to form a more perfect union, Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, and provide for the common defense. And then it goes on. And did you hear that? Did you catch that? Establish justice, 
ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, judge us, and fight our battles. Judge us and fight our battles. And and now here's the deal. The American system of government, in my opinion, is one of the best forms of human government that there is. It, It minimizes, although not perfectly, it minimizes corruption and abuse of power that is so common in other forms of government. But even in a good system, And I would say, especially in a good system, we have to double check that we don't trust the government more than we trust Jesus. Leonard Ravenhill, a 20th century evangelist about the same time as Billy Graham, he says it this way. The early church was married to poverty, to prisons, and to persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. Those three are another sermon for later. I would add to this, the modern church is also married to politics. And one of the reasons why we should not create and should not replicate the same error as the Israelites is because in the entirety of Scripture, human government is never seen in a good light. Even here, God lists all the bad things that a king would do. And not just a bad king like Saul, but a good king like David or Solomon does these same things. Governments are constantly shown as sources of oppression, of wickedness, and fear. In the book of Revelation, the government is depicted as a beast that comes out of the sea and oppresses the people of God and all the nations of the earth worship him. Make no mistake, Redemption Church. It does not matter what side of the political aisle wins this culture war. Biblical Christianity will be hated and persecuted by both a liberal government and a conservative one. Biblical Christianity, not the Christianity of a weak Jesus who does not care for sin we see on the left, nor the Christianity on the right that says if Jesus just had more AR-15s, the Romans would not have killed him. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. But Jake, doesn't it say, doesn't it say to honor the government? Doesn't it say to respect the government? Absolutely, but we do not worship the government. We do not go to it for worth. We do not go to it for value, for safety or protection like the Israelites do. The book of Romans tells us to be in submission to the governing authorities, and 1 Peter tells us to honor the emperor. In our case, honor the president. And Really quickly on a side note, I think we need to do a better job of honoring those in leadership. I don't think we do a good job. But although we respect the government, it is not our answer to everything that is wrong in life. It is not our source of hope. And we can clearly see the way that we do this, the way that the church does this, 
when we react to the modern political issues of our day. For example, we seek to solve the massive economic inequality of our country through the power of the government. We have super rich and we have super poor, those who have way too much money and those who can barely put food on the table. Is not our answer that if we can just get government to tax the rich, then that would solve the problem. And we see other countries that do this and we envy them and we become bitter at our own system. And we just say to ourselves, if we were just like Denmark or Sweden, our country would be better. If we had a government like everyone else, the poor in our country would be cared for and we would have what they need. However, there, there is a better way. The better way is here in the church. Not just any church, but, but Redemption Church. And I'm not saying Redemption Church is any better than any other church compared or anything special, but I am saying it's where the Spirit of God is, and even more importantly, where you are. Listen to the description of the early church in Acts 4. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses who sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. There was not a needy person among them. What if we took all the energy that we have and the, the energy that we put into raging at inequality in our country, and we use that energy to help those in need in our church. We want the government to forcibly take the wealth of others, but we are not willing to give our money to those in need. It was the Spirit of God that did this in, in the church in Acts 4, and it's the Spirit of God that's going to do it here in Redemption Church. For those of us who have money, would we trust God with it? Would we trust God with our own hearts? Would we be generous to give to those in need, knowing that God will continue to give us what we need? It is through trusting God, not the government, where economic inequality has its solution here in the church. Have we not also done this with abortion? Whether you are pro-choice or pro-life, we have to get the government to come in and save the day. If the government allows it, or if the government doesn't allow it, we're happy. And have we not seen the pro-choice side at the ending of Roe continue to look to the state? We, just, we have to have these laws passed and get these people elected, and so on. On the other hand, the pro-life camp is saying, aha, we've done it, we've won, there's nothing left to do. Jen Oshman, in her book, Cultural Counterfeits, says this. Studies show that for women who have had an abortion, their suicidality increases 155%. Studies also show that about 80% of women would not have chosen abortion if they had felt more supported. We can rage at the government all we want. 
but I think we're missing out on how Jesus actually wants us to reach our world. And these two statistics show us how we can move forward. The state is going to do what it does. We need to care for women in our midst. And I, w- I do want to say, if you are a woman who, who has had an abortion, I want you to know that you are loved and you are cared for. You are not alone. You are loved by God and he has not forsaken you. You are welcome in this place and with these people. RC leaders, have you created an atmosphere in your RC where if a woman was to have an unwanted pregnancy, would she hide it out of fear or would she feel supported? That's your responsibility. Our church partners with Hands of Hope, and they do so much good for women in need. There's so many ways to help here in our church. The government is going to do what it wants. We have a responsibility to the people here in our midst. We're not responsible for what is happening in Florida. We're not responsible for what's happening in Texas. We're not responsible for what's happening in California. We're not responsible for what's happening at the national government. We are responsible for what is here. The people in our church and in our spheres of influence do not neglect the person right next to you for an imaginary influence on the entire country. Spend your energy where God has placed you. The Good Samaritan, upon coming on the man robbed and beaten, he did not say, well, I hope the Roman Empire fixes this problem. No, he comes and he says, and he takes care of the man, and he takes them to an inn, and he cares for every need of that man. And of course, we're supposed to be involved in our city and involved in the political process. That's one of the gifts that we have here in this country. We're supposed to be involved. But we do not go into our city expecting to change the world with the weak arm of the government. Instead, we go into our city with the strong arm of the kingdom of God to save. The government cannot fix what is broken. Hear me, the government cannot fix what is broken. It cannot do what so many people want it to do. They want the government to be the savior of the world and to make things right, and the government will never be able to do that. Israel wanted a king to rule over them as they put their hope not in God, but they put the hope in the state. But instead, we turn to Jesus, our true and better king. He is in control, and he will fix what is broken. He is kind, and he is gracious, and does what is good and right and true all the time. See, Jesus was a king, 
But when he descended to us, he did not set up shop in the government and rule over us. Instead, when he came to us, he did not take from us. He gave wholly of himself to us. He lowered himself and served us. Eventually, he goes and he went to the cross where he bore our sins in his body that we might be saved. It is in Jesus that we find our hope in the world, where we see the solution to our world. Redemption Church, turn your eyes away from the government and turn your eyes to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are lovely and true and right, and Lord, forgive us in the ways that we have forsaken you and look towards our state, our city, our government. Lord, may you forgive us of that, and may we continue to look for you and help us to love those around us in our city and here in this building. God, you are the true king. And you are beautiful, and we love and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.